Hello, I'm Toby Haydock. One day I will evolve into somebody who has a career, but until then, you've got Toby Haydock's Who's Round. And talking about evolution, it's the second part of my interview with Ghostlight's Ian Hogg. Of lucky because I've uh, had such a breadth of stuff. I mean, and they've always come out of the blue. This is my kind of mystical thing, because I got, I got, I, got I, I turned up for a job about a Jack London story, a man and a dog freezing to death in the. Oh, Ukraine. this is the film. This is yeah. the film narrated by Orson Welles. Yes. No, no, no. Orson Welles narrated. Yeah, he's narrated. And this marvelous guy called David Cobham. Yeah. As a wildlife photographer, and I had actually won a, a prize, and also done movies. I mean, fictional movies, mm. Talk of the Otter. And yeah. That kind of. And um, I went to interview with him. We got on very well, and he said, "Right, well, um, I'd like you to do the part, and um, we, you, you're going to have to work with a dog, uh, and we've got two puppies, husky puppies." Uh, out there in Whitehorse and uh, with a sled dog owner called Fred, Fred Stretch. Uh, And he's going to keep them pretty pristine of human company so that you're going to arrive and they'll they'll love you and and we'll have a dog because you have to follow me free and all that Mm. stuff. stuff. And uh, we arrived in the Yukon with a lot of trauma, actually, all kinds of things happened, my mother died, all kinds of things. And I, and I, I ended up, and David revealed the fact that I was going to live with the dog in a log cabin <laughs> about 12 miles from the hotel, which is where they were all bloody staying. <laughs> um, and that didn't faze me all that much, because I like an outdoorsy thing. And um, so we went to, to collect the dogs. And we got into this uh, slidey door thing, four of us, and went out to Fred's caravan, mobile home. And uh, we knocked on his door, and there was this... I could, I, as I speak to you now, I can hear the voice saying, What do you want? <laughs> and David looked at me and said, uh, We're the David Common. Come for the horse, the dogs. We come for the dogs. Dogs? What dogs? My dogs are out. By the stretchway. Yeah, take, here's a key and you take them out there. Choose any one you want. What about you, Fred? Ah, oh, stuff it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a drunk. Ah. And um, we went out and he had something like uh, a dozen and a half dogs, huskies, uh, staked out just off the, in the snow off the freeway, uh, the Alaskan Highway. Which was, at that stage in the seventies was just a dirt track, big dirt track, and uh, they were just off there. And we arrived, and they were all—they're very intimidating animals, huskies, believe me. <laughs> on chains and things, and and you—they were—they get visited about two times a day or once a day, and moose fat is kind of hurled at them, and that's it. They live outside, and we had. To, and David said, "Well, there they are." We had to choose one of them. Which one do you want? <laughs> we walked we walked around looking, and there was one that didn't seem to want to bite us. 
and he kind of um, and I said well, let's have that one so they took him on the chain and, and gave the chain to me and it wasn't a big movie there were only six of us mm. and I was obviously Wrangler <laughs> <laughs> and we had a TV interview uh, in Whitehorse in that's, we had to get him into the car and go down and then drill him and he, he was a sled dog He's been a sled dog for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And uh, he wasn't top dog, you know, and things like going into... They were all crated to be moved somewhere. They didn't get into cars. Only the, only the lead dog, maybe, to make the others jealous would be done that. So Pepper was going, like that. No way. And then David, David, big tall man, David, sort of said, well, what are we going to do? And I can still, I can't remember. I went, luckily I'm not, I have had dogs and I wasn't scared. And I picked him up. I could have had my head bitten off now, I think about it, but I didn't. And I lifted him into the, you know, the back and sidled next to him. So he was on the window and I was beside him. And I put my arm round his shoulder and he was shivering. You know, and Slyre and and he went down to this interview, and uh, he he sat by me during this interview. TV, he'd never been in a TV <laughs> with this. I still had him shivering like that, and I took him back, and I had to I had to look after him in the co- in the in the cabin, and still I can remember the first night, uh, in this cabin, and, and Hans, his Swede, who was uh, that to make sure that food was made, help, you know. And he was meant to stay overnight as well. And anyway, he, he, we, we had pork and beans or whatever it was, and the dog got fed. And um, <clears throat> Hans got kind of restless, you know. And, and I said, what's wrong, Hans? And he's, he revealed the fact that he'd uh, an Indian squaw wife with about 12 kids. <laughs> and that's where he wanted to be. So I said, well, you, you get back before the others uh, do f- come for pick-up in the morning. And I'm, that's fine. Pepper's, Pepper was the dog's name. Pepper's fine, you know. And uh, I was left alone in the log cabin with Pepper and this steaming stove, you know. And the f- next thing is you, you strip down to your long comms and then you get into this huge sleeping bag, zip-up number, and you have to kind of load yourself into the bag, uh, uh, like into a cannon, you know, and zip yourself up, and and uh, and that's the way you sleep. And uh, Pepper, Pepper had never been in a big house, you know, and he sort of sat watching this. And we'd become acquainted, so he kind of knew I was on his side. And uh, and, and I'd go down to load myself into the bag, and uh, go below his eye level. And the moment I was there, he <laughs> seized the back of my neck, like a puppy dog yeah. scruff, you know. And I was going, oh, fuck off, Pepper, back down, off. And he was off, wondering what. It took me about half an hour to load myself into the bag. And uh, eventually we settled down, because uh, I did this for six weeks. Yeah, and uh, eventually I had him. He was running free on this. He was having a ball. 
you know, he, I used to take him out into the um, bush, as they call it, the forest. Yeah. And uh, and he'd come, he'd come back, you know, and that, 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 that's one thing huskies aren't all that good with, because they're usually on, you know. Sure. sure. On, on the, yeah. So when they're let off, it's, wow, you know. And he, came, he kept coming back. That was, that was magic. I can still remember one unforgettable experience. Uh, I used to take him out uh, to the sort of down the garden, except it was all snow, yeah. uh, to let him have a crap, um, and as you do with dogs. And um, you know, standing with the hus in my anorak, sort of uh, and, and long coms and muckluck boots, because I only thought I'd be out there for about three minutes, you know. <laughs> uh, on this particular night, the northern lights were going. And I, I mean, the Arctic Circle's but a breath away. Mm. And uh, there, was, there were the whole sky. It was like a great cathedral of translucent green, vibrating uh, light. It's fantastic. I remember holding this dog, just watching that. And thinking, you're never going to see anything like this again. It's one of those moments. Mm. And that's one of my top jobs, that one. It's called, it's called To Build a Fire. And it's still available yeah. in all the best bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, Orson Wells. Orson Wells. I only Wells. met, he, he, he did his narration yeah. in a nice studio on of the course. West Coast somewhere. Yeah. But I did meet him briefly when the showing. Um, lovely man, terrific. And what is? I mean, because you know, we've talked about stages, this and that. We've moved seamlessly onto screen. Um, I mean, did you have ambitions in that direction? Uh, I, 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 I. Yes, I did, and it's only when when I began to um, not feel comfortable with the big system. My my. Um, uh, experience of my first film experience really was um, Peter Brook uh, uh, playing Edmund for him, uh, King Lear, mm. Dem- oh, and that was a, that was indeed a movie, but there was none of the kind of ra- flam about it. Sure, it was just very very uh, to do with making the film and getting on with each other. Mm-hmm. And then the next job I had. I thought, now I know movies. Yeah. And I um, got a terrific job. I've I've never been paid so much in my life. Um, uh, And I was still sort of on the payroll of the RSC. I was getting a basic. Yeah. But my my expenses... It was all filmed in Austria. My expenses for The Last Valley, which is what it was called, were bigger than my RSC salary. Expenses, and uh, we, you know, and I had a horse. I didn't, and the part I played was almost Sherry from Michael Caine. Yeah, rated uh, horse that was identifiably mine, so nobody else could use it. And on the days off, of which there were many, because it wasn't a huge part, uh, I had this Lipizzana broodmare, beautiful grey heavenly creature and I'd ride through the larch trees so I thought this is fantastic 
And the only thing I hadn't seen and was all fresh to me from that experience was how we actors behave awfully to each other on the set. I mean, and I, the people involved knew a great deal more about acting, than I, uh, film acting, than I did. And um, I remember eight of us had to rush down this slope to rescue Michael Caine, who was up to something with his, his hero, his heroine, in this uh, cabin. And we were meant to burst into the room and a scene would happen. And uh, that would be filmed in Shepparton in six weeks' time. Mm -hmm. So the logic of the group was that first through the door gets a good shot position. And I saw people tripped up and <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, it was where all the kind of aim for integrity and reality that I'd been drilled with mm. in those previous things was up. And I remember this is impossible Swedish actor whom I had a scene with, whom uh, always did something to upstage you. So you would do this intense scene and he'd do something. And he was, I was meant to be playing Michael's second-in-command sort of sergeant figure, uh, this mad Cossack figure. I had a knife in my hat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and a lovely horse, let me tell you. I mean, that's added to my equine thing, love. Um, and I, um, I just, you know, I just sort of couldn't believe the hierarchy. Mm. No, certain actors you didn't didn't speak to. If Omar was going to speak to you, it it was like um, some member of royalty going to sit by you. He didn't push it actually. He was very down to earth. But um, and Michael Caine, he was very straight. Now they were great, but the the ones that got my goat was a kind of assistant producer producer a kind of enclave of, for want of a better word, backstage stuff, mm -hmm. who are actually assembling your life and your subsequent development, possibly. And then things would happen out of blue. Like, I remember James Clavell was the director. He got on very well with him. And he got a big um, American movie sort of casting director-type man, Harvey, somebody, who to come and... Uh, and he, he said, uh, I'm having him to supper. So you come and uh, I'll introduce you to him. And I, of course, I didn't realise that this was an um, enviable situation. Mm. And, yeah. And I just, I couldn't handle it. I, I, that, the fact that he was sort of that, in, testing me out in that way. Yeah. What kind of guy are you, you know? Um, didn't grated badly with me. And, and then my agent got contacted by um, the studio. Um, was I interested in a um, something? It was something like a three-year deal, but no parts, just players cast, sort of be there type thing. Yeah. And I turned it down. Because of the hierarchy stuff? Well, I didn't know. think... It, 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 I was beginning to get a sniff of... Of it's a very unreal world. I remember being years later, being on, on um, 
film of Rasputin, um, which uh, oh, recently died, a beautiful actor. He, he was playing Rasputin very well. And uh, we, were, went, we arrived back in the hotel and he said, come and have a drink at, uh, in the, bar, the, you know, the reception bar. And we did, and, you know. Then uh, three of the kind of producery lot came in and, and joined in talking. And I just couldn't believe the conversation going on, you know. They were discussing people's lives like they were sort of card games. Right. And um, I think Pat Stewart had been playing um, whatever character he did in Star Trek. Yeah, I'm sure. Cap Captain Picard, Picard yeah. yes. And he'd, uh, he'd obviously had enough, so he left it. And that half the conversation around this little table was, um, oh, it's a bad move, Patrick Stewart, a bad move. He should understand what he's doing. <laughs> and so on, and you sort of thought, oh, God, there are, there's a whole kind of panoply of people you'd be led in to see, yeah. saying, what move, you know. And it was just too complicated to even contemplate as a possibility, you know. Sure. Uh, so, no. Not for you. Not for me, no. T television, on the other hand, seems far more, more uh, down to earth than for, that. For, for about um, mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, or not, not, television was very good to me. I mm. And I did like that. Because uh, those days of television, I, was, I had this sort of two lines. I had the Rockcliffe Babies. Yeah. Three years, two or three years. On, which is an experience of popular television. So, yeah. You know, and uh, I was doing um, one-off plays for BBC Two, which was, to me, primarily interested in. In fact, one of the things I'm proudest of, uh, never get shown, <laughs> was um, Colin Rose, a very good director in Bristol, did a three-parter written by um, Ted Walker, who's a local... Um, ham you know, South Southeast poet, Hampshire poet, travel writer, wrote these three trilogies about his relationship with his dad, um, from childhood through to old age, and two of them certainly marvelous, and one in particular was about his um, his childhood during the war. Um, was. Which should be shown because it was just such a portrait of a of an eight year old kid, and the war, and all that that entailed, and um, Lou Grade didn't. I don't know what they, you saw. Why don't they repeat it? Because it's good, mm. and there were the good top writer Ted Walker, Colin Rose had just done very successful several very successful pieces for the BBC Bristol. He thought, why? Why sit on it and not do it? It's there to complete. Family Man, it was called. And and uh, other other things that, you know, I did a... It come out as a blow, like... like um, I remember uh, Maggie, my... I had a very unfortunate... My father was a Scot. Very Scot. 
I mean, um, and uh, his preoccupation, his doctor, his preoccupation was that his children, me and my sister, should be brought up Scots as opposed to Geordie's, which is what my mother was. I was born in Newcastle. And um, so I thought I was Scottish, you see. So I didn't have an accent. But then he trained, being a good middle-class <coughs> sort of GP, he'd uh, trained both me and my sister to speak proper. So we spoke RP. Yeah. You know? I can still remember one of the rhymes I had to say to this allocution teacher was... Ellis had a rabbit, a little white rabbit, with a tail like a little white patch. It had a bad habit, had Alice's rabbit, for his toes went scritty scratch. <laughs> <laughs> so we spoke like that, and um, I went. I, I got a job up in with a, with a, a terrific New Scots play for the Edinburgh Festival. Um, that went playing a, a, a Scot, mad Scots play called The Day They Took Mad Tullach Away, uh, which was a, about a Highland regiment and so on. And it was a, visibly about the regiment I'd been in, the Seaforth Highlanders. And I got on like a house on fire with the writer who just shared tales of the Seaforth. But I didn't get on very well with the Scots, who thought I was this Sassanak bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Taking our best part of this. <laughs> and I lasted a fortnight. And that was it. And I went home swearing I'd never work in Scotland again. Really? Oh, yeah. You, you took yourself out of the production? Well, it was, a, it was half and half. I mean, I think if I'd... If I, I remember I lived in London at the time, coming back to see her uh, for a brief sort of Sunday and back scene. And... Uh, when the witching time came to go and get the sleeper mat to Edinburgh, uh, on the, and I got there on the Saturday, left on the Friday, got there on the Saturday, that's it, we had a reasonable Saturday, and then time coming to get the transport back, and I said, I remember sitting to see her and saying, I don't want to go back. It's misery there. <laughs> okay. So, um, and all the Scottish faces were there, you know, the Roddy Macmillan was playing a ghost and hardly contacted me at all. He <laughs> just looked at the floor. <laughs> and, um, oh, terrible time. And um, uh, the phone rang and the director said, uh, I, I mean, he lived, in, he lived in Knightsbridge. And he said, uh, uh, I'd like a chat with you. Can you meet? Have a beer, and um, we met in the Knightsbridge Hotel. Have a beer, and I think I'd only been sitting there for about two minutes, and and I said, um, I don't want to go back. Misery. <laughs> and he didn't. He wasn't quite as crude as saying, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, and I didn't. Wow. Uh, and uh, years went by, and and I never worked Scots again, and. Um, Eventually, uh, livery bills have to be paid, and mm -hmm. I had this horse, as you know, and uh, Maggie, my agent, rang up and said, um, Taggart are uh, uh, asking for you in a three-parter uh, about a uh, uh, Glasgow hitman who gets uh, involved in three episodes. How do you feel? And I said, Maggie, she knew. I said, 
I'm not going to work with the Scottish. No way. And get, I'll get assassinated. He said, he said, is it a Scot? He said, yes, yes, a Glasgow hitman. And I said, oh, come on. And um, she said, well, Ian, it's blah, blah money. <laughs> it's three, it was to me that was good. So I, did, I said, yeah, I did it. And I went to uh, Mick McManus was tagged at that time. Yeah. And um, I went up to uh, Glasgow and I thought, oh dear, what am I going to do? Um, so I thought, I'll just speak with her slightly, you know, during coffee break and things like that. I'll just let a, a, a slight Scottish term come into my voice. And, uh, no, no more than that. And then when the redo comes, I just, I just, which he did, I, I won't go fully. I just say, you know, and, and uh, that's what I did. And um, anyway, I mean, just because they were nice people, basically. He, Mick McManus was a lovely guy. And um, I said, I'm worried about this Glasgow accent. And he says, Oh no, it's perfectly all right, Ian. Come on, Dad, hang on here. <laughs> and he was terrific. And I did it. And and even though I say it now, it was working well. And um, so, you you should eat your words. So it broke your it broke your Scottish curse. Oh yeah, and then and then subsequently that I've done two or three. Yeah. In fact, the last thing I did for telly was uh, an horrible Scottish. <laughs> Glaswegian dad, Dennis Lawson's dad. Dennis Lawson, is it? The, the new tricks. Yeah, Dennis Lawson. And, uh, yeah. Well, his dad, in the, in the early episode, in uh, uh, earliest one, he's got this dad who's a very unpleasant man, uh, on it, breathing his last in a hospital bed, and he's got to go and have three or four scenes with him. And that was me. And it was, it was in Glaswegian, obviously. And I can still remember my first line. It's one of the best first lines I ever had. She was, he's led in to the bedroom, you know, the hospital, where everybody's with pipes and things like that, awful. And there's Dad with a sort of thing like that over his face. And he comes and sits opposite his dad. And then eventually, I think he goes, you know, physically touches him. And then you see this face go, oh, pull this mask off. And they look eye to eye and they say, oh, yeah, I thought I smelled <laughs> That's an entrance. <laughs> well, look, you've, men you've mentioned, very, we've only sort of slightly covered your, your, your popular success of, of Rockcliffe's Babies, but, mm. uh, which then became Rockcliffe's Folly. But, um, I mean, it's quite a thing to have your own show and then you are the hierarchy you are the leading man I so guess. did that did that change you especially as the nature of the show was that you were in charge of these babies which were for the, yeah, the listener who yeah. may not be familiar a senior police officer who has these fledgling uh cops who he has to show the ropes in sort of inner city yes. london yes no that was terrific i mean it really was an experience and i just wish that it was valued in the way i think it should have been valued as as a show mm. Because it, in its day, that which is a long time ago now, I admit it was, it was like eighty nine, ninety, that sort of time, mm -hmm. had huge viewing figures. Yeah, 
In fact, it equaled the bill, which was a sort of competitive programme on the other. Yeah. And um, I don't know, it had, it had the difficulty for the powers that be that it was about uh, rookies. Yeah. And they only do crime squad for two years. So in the reality of the situation, they did two shows and they were going to have to recast half a dozen parts because the uh, rookies would all move on. Move on, I see. And they decided, for better or worse, to take Rockcliffe and move him down to um, Dorset. Yeah. And uh, they did, uh, I think it was six or ten, uh, seven or ten episodes on film. Oh, yeah. Called Rockcliffe's Follies. Yeah. Which I really enjoyed. And I thought some of the scripts were really good. And, and I thought... But what happened logistically, I'm told... By them, that um, the viewing figures, which for the youngies had been excellent, it was something like eight million, that sort of kind of yeah. EastEnders type number. Yeah. And um, that um, when the viewing figures for the Follies came in, uh, two things had happened that disturbed them. One, it was down, but building went down to about four or five million. But was looking was not going further, but was that there, which is half. Yeah. Um, and uh, they didn't like what had happened with the age group, because the, the age group of the of the babies watchers yeah. viewers was something like oh fifteen to eighteen twenty. That yeah. Thing. And the the age group for the follies was like. 35 to 45. Because it was more of a regional crime yeah, drama, was, whereas the previous one had been in the city. Yeah. At that time was a man in his 50s. Sure. And there was no kind of young yeah. squad. Yeah. He was, he was grappling with... And I thought, oh... It's, I remember... And I, and when I got a dog, I remember, and I had a scene in the back of the car where he's talking with his dog. Well, you're talking to a bloody dog. But I, I remember the first episode of Rockcliffe's Babies, which I think rather bravely you're not in till the very end. Is that right? That's that it. It, comes it follows it. Joe McGann all through it. Yeah. And then you, you, everyone's talking about Rockcliffe, but you only have one line at the yeah. end of the first episode, yeah. which was quite a, that was quite a bold move for yeah. a show. Yeah. And then also we used to get three episodes at a time learning. Um, and the first clump of series was, uh, and everybody's... I'd never been in that situation where people are, you know, you're doing ten, and so they start viewing the first three and getting kittenish and mm. disturbed about whatever. And um, we got the second batch of um, three, just going up to about six or seven, and then only one more batch to go. And I remember opening the script for, um, I think it was the middle one of the, of the three, um, and there was Rockcliffe's office with the the guys sort of sitting round Rockcliffe's desk, and I don't know which character it was. To, 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 uh, they'd opened his desk to see what he's got inside, and he he goes, "Hey, what? Look at this. What's?" It? And he had a bag of pink pills. They said, "Eh." It isn't. And one of them goes, it is. They are. Yeah, what? You know, and then Rockcliffe come in and they go, 
I think when I read it, I thought, uh oh, here's a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> here's a heart attack in episode eight. <laughs> so even when you've got your own series, the actor's paranoia that you oh, get killed off. No, not only that, but we got up, we got up to. Uh, there was a, I don't know what, whether it was a strike or some technical wrongdoing, but I mean, episode 10, the final of the first block, was Rockcliffe, who's a, remember, he's, a, he's a, an alcoholic. Um, it's, it's a shot on the Thames Embankment. There's Rockcliffe walking on his own with a, a bottle of vodka. So he's on with stuff again. He's, he leans forward. Looking at the water, <laughs> and that was the last image. Um, and I thought, he's uh, he's away, he's away with the fairies. <laughs> but uh, they didn't. And the uh, second episode, they kind of built on him. Um, and then uh, the Dorset one, I really liked because he was becoming to be a kind of. Fully fledged sort of figure in, in 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 with a with a a, a life that had a daughter and uh, he was trying to build a barn and yeah. his dog arrives in his life and it's a kind of comic potential and also strange cases coming in and uh, I was really very sad when they didn't because um, I remember being I was doing King Lear with Eric Porter and I was playing Kent yes in the um, the old Vic, yeah, uh, in the you know, and uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Cox, I think, was a, a regular BBC producer mm-hmm. who, who was just very keen on getting a, you know, a further series that was all in the air, and um, he on a couple of occasions he said, well, it's on here, it's on, you know, we've got six scripts, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but it, it didn't happen, go any further. They, they did it. They dished it in and they brought in a, a, a series about two girls, two girl detectives. Right. Um, I was quite sad about that. But also, at the same time, I was contemplating, God, what happens if it suddenly got a sort of Bergerac longevity? Well, whether I would... Would you have stuck with it? Or no, I was yeah. beginning to get to that stage where you think, God... I've done this door opening bit so many times, you know, where you begin to sort of think, I can't really... So I was, be- I was, be- I was in- very interested in the Follies thing because it had all kinds of variation possibilities. Yeah. Uh, and I was disappointed when it didn't flower. Um, and then paranoidly suspicious when a programme which was extremely successful, because he's a very good actor, called Wycliffe, Yes, Jack came Shepherd. out literally yeah. within the year. Yeah, and they would have been very alike because Jack's character was very like that. Yeah. So the paranoid, paranoid part of me goes, "I bet there was some kind of shenanigans." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was. It was just one of those um, uh, opposite to serendipities for me. Yeah, mm. which is the meat and drink of an actor's yeah. line. I'm interested because I mean. You, 
said you were doing that King Lear with Eric Porter, and I noticed that Paul Rogers was in that, who's oh, who yeah. is an actor that uh, tragically nobody really oh, talks about terrific. because he didn't really do the television route. No. He just stayed in the theatre yeah, yeah. and you know played. He was the first he Max in the Homecoming. Yeah. All these Royal Shakespeare wow. Company parts, and but it, nobody no, talks no, about Paul Rogers now. You know, sadly, and no, because it's all yeah. Yeah. It's so ephemeral because yeah. theatre of its yeah. nature. Is... Well, what about Schofield? I mean, they did, but I, it always makes it always sort of grates a bit with me that um, Paul died, and indeed there was a great deal of respect and so on. But there was no kind of bio docu on his life or anything. There was no kind of build-up stuff. Sure. About and he's a major figure. Yeah. I think he's not a knight because he refused to have it. I think that's correct, yeah. yeah. And um, I just... I, that's where I get... That's where I, I, I... You know, that's where I become the grumpy old man, uh, is that um, I came into a theatre in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, where I was, as an actor, and I wasn't the only one, was inspired by the idea of an ensemble. Mm. I remember the only place I wanted to work, and Christ, I actually got to do so, was um, uh, the RSC, which proclaimed itself. It had a manifesto outside the Aldrich Wall. Yeah. The ensemble. This company declares that it will create a company of actors able to do epic work. Mm. This company declares that it will have an ensemble in which the young actor will develop blah, blah, everything you wanted to hear. Yeah. You know? And it, that slowly decayed until it created its own star system, where Ian Richardson, oh, very marvellous actors, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but there, there was a star system within, yeah. which, which caused a great deal of discontent because you've got lots of young actors like and as I was then getting very restless, because um, you know uh, Ian Richardson gave himself a nervous breakdown by doing four major roles in a season, you know, back yeah. to back, Richard III, Hamlet, all those ones, and they're still doing it. Yeah, and it's not right. And you think they should divide the yeah, spoils well, more? Yeah, actors shouldn't. You know, I, I know I'm getting kind of homely, but I mean, actors shouldn't have to dis to choose between. I mean, I'm worried. I was worried about not getting but to see my horse and my home in the Lincolnshire world. You know, I, that was bad enough for me. I mean, I began to shape my career because that's the life I really valued. So, what on earth, an actor that's got two, three-year-old kids mm -hmm. uh, and a wife, and uh, and a season that seamlessly rams him into the impossibility of doing anything but see the rehearsal room. Yeah. Uh, you, you're bound to get def de what's the word, deflated about the whole process. And then you've got a, a publicity system that, that creates this celebrity world of nothingness, frequently, being treated as if it was an icon of amazement, you know. Mm. And shows that... Shows that really are the place of the old repertory theatre and places that are very good as the old reps were, but not to be given um, Holy Grail awards for being the best um, soap opera in town. It's not, they're very hard. I mean, I've been, I've done a week on EastEnders doing a visiting part. 
And I was absolutely amazed with the workload they were carrying. And I thought, gosh, that, you know, so that, uh, that's it. But, but on the other hand, all that does is create what Peter hated, Peter Brook, mm. which is habit. Yeah. And people can only take that workload if they just have eight habits, which they do every time. Yeah. And then the thing that drives me almost witless with Grumpy Tom is when I, I heard the lads in, in, in the Anthony and Cleo talk, and I should go in the green room and chat with it, because Anthony and Cleo's got a goodly smattering of young actors there, and uh, hearing about um, Facebook and Twittering and so on, and realising that there was a whole element of living which I didn't go to at all. You're not missing uh, much. <laughs> and... Um, and also them talk, another was a big conversation because somebody was going up for a, I think it was a film interview actually, and they, they said, um, can you do a voiced whisper? And I said, well, what? He said, a voiced whisper, you'll be asked if you can do, and, that, and what, and, and if you listen to the, especially the movies and quite a lot of TV drama now, it's full of people going like that. What do you mean? And it's a great escape because if you're playing Leah, you, you, you don't want to, you know, you're intimidated, intimidated by saying, howl, 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 rage, you know. You can't, you, that's embarrassing. So you get a close-up and your face is all made wet and smattering and you go, oh, oh, oh. And you whisper it all. Yeah. <laughs> Mumbling acting is what I think of. And it gives me it, yeah. the heebie-jeebies. It really does. You yeah. Know, especially when you hear somebody like Sko. Yeah. His voice was one of his prime instruments. Yeah. It's counterintuitive yeah. to the great traditions oh, of classical could acting. Oh, he could I remember him once we do the, the, the climax of US, the Peter Brook show, which was in repertoire, with uh, the, um, the Staircase, which was a new play in the, in the Aldrich season. And Paul Schofield and... Um, there's a marvellous actor called Patrick... McGee? McGee. He's one of my heroes. Yeah. Terrific. Well, he was never knowingly underplayed, was he? <laughs> no way. <laughs> but uh, and they were playing two hairdressers and it was Sunday and they were sweeping up. And Schofield was... It was a, the play started with a long silence of this old hairdresser's shop and uh, Schofield's character was sort of on a couch, that like that, and... Uh, McGee was kind of doing a sort of brush job, and long silence. And um, on this particular occasion, uh, we released a dozen butterflies into the as, a, as the ultimate sort of scene of US, and they got stuck in the roof, and they never got rid of them. Uh, and during frequent occasions, during subsequent shows, a butterfly would appear. And Schofield had it as long as right like that, and a cabbage white came fluttering into the light and went and landed on his foot. And there was a long, just the right amount of silence. He heard Schofield's voice say, Funny day, Sunday. (laughs) 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 And that's that's what I can't imitate it, but that's what that's the voice he got. Funny day, Sunday. He had that ululation, that 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 throaty lilt, didn't he? And he had, and they had a marvelous show called The Thwarting of Baron Bolligrew, 
She was one, he was just voiceover, he was the dragon in the cave. And I can still hear Sko's voice going, and I'm Bolly Grew, <laughs> And oh, the opening scene in King Lear, um, which on stage was even better on film, but you've got this kind of throne, all kinds of preparation for quarter happening, and Gloucester's doing his introducing Edmund bit, and there's this throne in the middle of it all, like an, oh, I don't know, an upturned coffin or something. You don't know who the hell's inside. All you hear is two horny hands outside on the handle and no face. And then the time comes, and I still remember this face comes forward. Gloucester, Gloucester. Call forth the lords of France and Burgundy. <laughs> this is bored, old, old man. He was absolutely right. You could just see the immense amount of boredom with the whole... He just wanted to go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and it was sad. Extraordinary, yeah. yeah. Well, you worked... Your last bit... Um or latest season at the RSC, you played a Doctor Who's father. You played David Tennant's uh, op- uh, op- Capulet to his Romeo. I did, yes. So did he, ha- did he have the star quality that he's... Tennant, yeah. David. <sighs> yes, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, un- he's very much... I haven't seen his stage work recently, but um, he has... What my what my old teacher Riyat Marmgren used to say is, "Oh Ian, whatever you're playing, you must play with free flow, free flow. Even if you're King Lear and you're pulling your eyes out, you must enjoy it." And that's what he does, Tennant. You can just feel, you can feel this kind of glitter of of. And that's what Schofield had, was that kind of... Enjoy, Schofield enjoyed being there. Even when he's walking past me three minutes late, and yeah. it's his fault, he goes, no. And what about... You worked with Patrick Troughton a couple of times on, on your yes, telly, didn't you, David? Co- who uh, was, uh, uh, in Lorna Doon. Yeah. I, yeah, terrific. He's a lovely man. Yes, I got to know him quite well. And also in a, a very sort of failed history series called um, uh, The Devil's Brood. Oh, yes. Which was about um, uh, Henry II and his children and uh, Jane Lapotere as Eleanor. Yeah. And us as assorted lords and barons. Yeah. Because <laughs> um. quite a... Yeah, yeah, Trenton's difficult to put your finger on him because of the characters he played were also sort of mercurial and he yes. very rarely gave interviews so he's always yeah. been this sort yeah. of slightly enigmatic yeah. figure Trent he's an interesting yes he did he, did. he played he played uh, Carver not Carver Dune he played the scene in Lorna Dune. Dune yeah he played the senior of the Dunes yeah he, well as you, you kind of know people as actors and then you know people as people that you have a drink with on location and so on and that was the Patrick I knew uh, uh, I remember. I remember. We, 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 we this devil's brood thing. We um, we all, we had uh, the uh, um, in. Well, it was all interior. I saw it was all horses and things in in the script. And I saw oh, 
great, we're going to go to some Welsh hills and we'll be riding, riding, riding. Uh, in actual fact, we were in studio all the time. It was all done in studio, a TV centre. And um, at the time, I was going through a kind of um, goats in the garden, horse up the road, the country life for me. And I had a scooter um, and a rucksack. And, uh, and, and I used to come into the studio and I was also playing a hairy lord. So I had to be like, like that. And I would go and you had to, you had to report into the um, two men on the gate to get okayed. And then you could drive to a little park, motorcycle park up there. And I was there for all the episodes, in all the episodes. And I was there and they, every single time, they stopped me. They made me take my rucksack off, you know, and and, and I was really pissed off. And uh, I was talking over a cup of coffee, regaling this fact to Patrick. And he said, I'll tell you what to do, Ian. Do one of two things. Get a taxi next time. Just get a taxi and uh, see what happens. And I did. I got a, a cab. Cost me about six quid in, the, in those days. That was like 12 quid. And um, they hardly looked at me. Straight in. And, he, and Patrick said, what's that? He said, um, get a car, Ian. Get a car and your sufferings will be over. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. They would... They would um, goes through people who looked a bit like sort of uh, plebs. Yeah. That's all it is. Would get done over. But the vehicle gave you status. Yes. Ah, very good. Those are sometimes the tricks you need to learn from a fellow actor. Yeah, just but like... he, he did, yes. And he was right. Well, look, I've taken up far more of your time than I promised I would. So do you have any more memories of, of just the making of your Doctor Who and with Sylvester and, and playing that? Very, it's a great part, the lead yes, villain in, yes. a, in a Doctor Who. I just uh, the, the the thing I re- I remember actually the thing I remember most was something, I mean I did like. First of all, the organised chaos of doing a Doctor Who, in I mean they were just they were editing on the spot, the the the, the, the actor dexterity that was required was amazing, and my two classic images of it and are uh, one. Uh, which is just magical. I thought she was marvellous. Was Kate Schlesinger, yeah. who played the young girl, yeah. sitting at the piano, singing, I take them to the zoo. That's the way to the zoo, to, yeah. That's the way to the zoo. And she's just magic. And the other was um, uh, John Nettleton transforming into a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful. Beautiful stuff. There's an awful lot of extremely good work gets done in the context of that show. Yeah. Because people are, A, encouraged to be quick-witted and take risks and go for it, you know, and they do. Well, look, you've very kindly given a lot of your time. Um, uh, I've been uh, hanging on your every word, and I know the listeners would have been so. And because you've done it for no financial recompense and the listener hasn't paid for this, we ask them to donate to a charity which you get to nominate. Yeah. So what's your charity of choice? Well, I know that because, I, 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 in fact, I read ghost stories for the local sort of uh, community uh, in aid of Vegas charities. And the thing that uh, I did was uh, Alzheimer's.
I'd like that. And I will do a, I will do a link at the end and lead them to a website where they yeah. can donate. And the final uh, question is, this podcast was originally very nominally uh, formatted to celebrate what was then 50 years of Doctor Who. Doctor Who is now 53 years old. Uh, for, it's in its 53rd year. Um, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans who listen to this podcast? I'll sign the autographs if you ask for them. <laughs> I mean, one of the best days I had, which is about a month and a half ago, was when they, uh, uh, I, I was in, in, a, in a signing... Uh, you know, signing photograph, yeah. and it was a magical day because a I didn't know what to expect, and b uh, I went to this packed place hall in Chiswick, mm. and there were just actually some some of the fans are absolutely marvellous eccentrics of all kinds, and I just had a I had a ball people watching. That's, so I thank them for that. That's very nice to hear. <laughs> uh, well, and we thank you for this. Uh, so it just remains for me to say, Ian Hall, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for listening. Great. That was marvellous. I'm, so, I, 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 I'm sorry I've taken up so much of your time. That was fantastic. Thanks to Ian, who just said to Alzheimer's, didn't specify a particular charity, so there's a couple here. There's um, uh, alzheimers.org.uk, that's the Alzheimer's Society, or alzheimersresearchuk.org, that's uh, Alzheimer's Research. Um, but a donation to one of those, or another one, another Alzheimer's charity that you might have stumbled across or be uh, particularly uh, in favour of, uh, would be in keeping with the spirit of this podcast. Uh, of which there will be another edition next week. My thanks to Paul and Dexter from Phantom Films, uh, who uh, recommended me to Ian, and uh, and to, of course, Ian himself, who have given me a fantastic load of time, and also gave me the brilliant um, insight into the actor Martin Body, who plays Walker in The Sea Devils, who, amongst many other aspects of his career as a character actor, also sang at Alistair Crowley, the famous devil guy's uh, funeral. So there we are. The funny the funny politician from the Sea Devils sang at Alistair Crowley's fu- funeral. It's the things like that that I discover, you know, when the Who's Rounds are over and we're having a glass of wine and a pizza afterwards. So um, <laughs> I love this stuff. Uh, I hope you do too. Otherwise, it's just me talking to myself. But there we go. I'm happy. Um, <laughs> see you next time. Cheerio. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, Ghost Walk. Now, everyone, I would ask you to be brave. We're going to venture into the catacombs, sealed underneath the city since the 17th century. When the catacombs were uncovered, this chamber was found. It had been put to sinister purpose. We can only guess that something was worshipped down here. Something evil. (laughs) Who are you? Who are you? It wants me to be afraid. It's like a hand stroking my spine. You can sense the energy on me, can't you? 
because I've travelled in time. Do you by any chance believe in ghosts? Big Finish. We love stories.